everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and my guest today is somebody that is very well known within the Canadian pro-life movement, but surprisingly obscure elsewhere. I thought about interviewing her for quite a while, and, and she's finally agreed to speak with me. Her name is Mary Wagner. Now, there's been a lot of discussion in Canada amongst conservatives over the last couple of months about the political persecution of Tamara Leach of the Freedom Convoy. There's been a lot of people referring to her as a political prisoner, and it seems pretty obvious to most observers that the judicial system is dropping the hammer on her because she is a political dissident in many ways, considering the fact that all kinds of rape and murderers and hardened criminals get let out on parole or with a slap on the wrist. But Tamara Leach, for a protest, is being persecuted and kept behind doors. Well, this goes double for Mary Wagner, who was born in 1974. and She's a Canadian pro-life activist who has served many prison sentences. She has been in jail, in and out of jail, for years for entering abortion clinics to counsel mothers against abortion. Now, many of you haven't heard of her, despite the fact that she has spent years in prison simply for attempting to speak speak to mothers who were considering aborting their babies. She was arrested for the first time in 2012, and after a nearly two-year-long trial, Judge Fergus O'Donnell found her guilty of mischief and probation violation. She is just a, a fascinating person and a lovely person, and I've wanted to talk to her about experience, her experience for quite a while because she has a very unique ministry. She uh, tries to serve people inside prisons. She has been willing to go to jail for her beliefs, and yet very few people bother to consider Consider the sacrifice she is making on behalf of preborn children. Now, I understand that some people are uncomfortable with civil disobedience, but I think that hearing her story and hearing how her story has unfolded and hearing the convictions that her story is rooted in uh, will give people a cause for pause. I, I do believe that Mary Wagner is an extraordinary Canadian, and I do believe that. Whether or not you agree with her method of protesting, her method of reaching out on behalf of the preborn, that you have to admire the conviction that has led her to spend years in prison simply to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. So without further introduction from me, here is my conversation with Mary Wagner. So many pro-lifers in Canada will be familiar with your name. They'll have read your name in the newspaper. They'll have read your name at LifeSite News or at other pro-life outlets. But I suspect a lot of, of pro-lifers wouldn't know a whole lot about your backstory. So maybe let's start with explaining a little bit about who Mary Wagner is. Uh, what's your background? What brought you from being presumably a fairly ordinary person to somebody who is one of Canada's most prominent prisoners of conscience? The third of 12 kids, including five adopted. I was born and raised in a Catholic Christian family as a very young adult, actually very pro-life, very engaged in, in pro-life work as as a as a family and from a young age at university as well. I attended UVic and was one of two to reignite the pro-life group there on campus. And I think towards my, the end of my studies there, I felt God was calling me to sort of a more full-time, as I understood it at the time, for full-time engagement in pro-life work. My gaze on the abortion problem was in Canada was just that. It was looking at the evil of abortion sort of in the abstract and not really in the personal, as a lot of people who are involved in the sidewalk counseling and pregnancy resource centers understand it. After graduation, I ended up going on a pilgrimage. It was a, a journey. It was supposed to be kind of a fun time of an adventure in Europe. And I ended up doing a lot of volunteer work and 
drew close to some really deeply Christian people and communities and started spending much more time in prayers, particularly silent prayer. And God opened my heart to the possibility that he was calling me in a different direction, different completely than what I had envisioned and most people would envision for their lives. And I realized that that was indeed in pro-life work, but I came to understand it more and more as, as I grew in my faith that it was really gospel of life work, that I was just called to be living the gospel more fully. And so that led me to, upon my return to Canada, to engage in, in pro-life work full-time in a pregnancy home. And and then he, he surprised me by the great gift of a grace that broke my heart. And it was it was like a clarity on what happens to the child in the womb during an abortion. And it, it broke my heart. It devastated me. And through that pain, through that grieving, I realized very clearly that he was calling me to where the little ones are being killed, where the mothers are are taking their children to be killed. And so that led to in my mid-20s, I think I was 24, to the first time that I actually went to one of these killing places and had established a relationship with this young mom, teenager, who had nobody except her boyfriend who was pro-abortion. And it led me to the, the first sort of confrontation. I, I don't know how else to describe it because it clearly was at the killing place where simply my presence advocating peacefully for life, for the child of not the woman I entered with, but another woman who was ahead of her and how that led to my first arrest and the conviction, even though that little one of my young friend had, had died that day, that indeed this is where Christ is abandoned in, in these little ones and in these mothers and it was very strong in my heart to go and love them where, where he was being unloved and where these little ones and mothers were being unloved. What year did you get arrested for the first time? I believe that was 1999. Oh, so a long time ago already. A long time ago, for about a period of three years after that initial arrest, I would I spent a lot of time sidewalk counseling. I was arrested a few more times. Always and only have I ever been charged with mischief, interfering with lawful enjoyment of a business. So sometimes that was standing in front of the doors before the entry before they opened in the mornings, um, not actually going in in those early years. After a while, I felt God was calling me just to enter more deeply into a life of prayer and silence with him. And I entered a monastery where I was very blessed for almost well, about three and a half years to, I think, really to be strengthened by drawing closer to him in prayer and simplicity and poverty. And then I, ultimately before vows, I had to make a decision. And that first call was still very much on my heart. So I left and providentially, Linda Gibbons, who had been out of custody and out of this scene, um, taking care of her father, who had died just the year before. So for seven years, she was caring for him. After his death, she decided she was going to return to her call of being a voice for the, the children and for the mothers as a post-abortive mother. She did not want any other women to go through what she did. And that was a huge motivator and has been for her. So I left the convent spent some time with Mother Teresa's sisters in Washington, D.C., and that was a great source of encouragement for me as well. And I went to Toronto because that's where Linda was actually in custody at the time. So I'm from the West Coast, but I had been sort of everywhere. And it just seemed clear that God usually wants us to work in community or at least with somebody else. He doesn't usually call people to be on their own, although that, that does happen. I really craved and, and desired to be with others who, who had a similar calling. So 
I moved to Toronto, and that was in 2010. Where on the West Coast were you from? So I was born in Vancouver and raised in Tawasson and lived there until I finished high school, Tawasson Ladner. And then, well, then I was away and I moved back to, I went to Victoria for my studies the year after I graduated from high school. I was there for four years. And so West Coast is really home to me. And that's where I am again now for the last three and a half years. Yeah, no, for me too. So I'm very familiar with the area, of course, because I grew up in in Chilliwack. What was the first clinic you got arrested in front of? Well, it's called Every Woman's Health Clinic, and it was established as the first freestanding abortion clinic, I would say killing center or abortion facility more accurately. And that was in 1988. It was the only one at the time for a number of years. And it was built and operating, so to speak, the very same year that Mother Teresa's sisters were invited to Vancouver and made their first foundation here in BC. And their call was, as Mother Teresa wanted at the time, was for them to minister to unwed moms. And so they welcomed them into their home. And it was just blocks from every woman's. Many of our listeners will be very familiar with the the organization, or I should say the movement, Operation Rescue, where 70,000 people throughout the 1980s and early 1990s got arrested in front of abortion clinics. And, and this included people who are taking a wide range of different of different tactics. For some people, it was nonviolently blocking the doors. For others, it was actually chaining themselves to the actual doorknobs. For some, it was mass sit-ins around clinics, right? There was roughly, just for context, 15,000 arrests during the American Civil Rights Movement, 70,000 arrests during the American Rescue Movement. So there was just a huge disparity between those two. And then in Canada, of course, we had a, a very short-lived rescue movement after the R.V. Morgenthaler decision in 1988, which ended when the judges began to put people in jail for very long times. And now we have the Red Rose Rescues and the Pink Rose Rescues going on in the U.S., led by people like Dr. Monica Miller, where they go into the waiting rooms of the clinics to hand out flowers and encourage them to choose life. A couple of pro-life activists that I know very well just got out of jail after spending three or four days there after going into a clinic in Michigan, they say five babies were saved that day, and so they don't regret they don't regret it for a minute. So there's there's different views of on different strategies surrounding going into clinics. The Red Rose Rescues, Monica Miller describes it as part of the Catholic social teaching where she's standing in solidarity with these babies in, in the hour of their peril. And so even if she doesn't manage to save any, it's worth it just because her physical presence is the point. For, of course, the other rescues that was modeled after uh, other social reform movements where we're blockading the place where the killing was happening was the point. Where would you say that, that your mission and that of Linda Gibbons falls into this broad range I've just laid out? I think more towards Monica Miller's, as you described, Dr. Monica Miller's understanding, especially because I, I knew of nobody at the time when I left the monastery other than Linda, that it was really Mother Teresa who who spoke of one person at a time and, and the five finger gospel. You did it to me. You did it to me. One one on one. Although I'm so joyful and I really am rejoicing at the the movement now as you spoke about Red Rose Rescue, Pink Rose Rescue, and I'm not sure if you're aware, but Father Fidelis Moshinsky, he's a Franciscan friar, his most recent arrest, oh, he's in custody for another, I think a Red Rose Rescue, but most recent arrest was, and charges were for 
block, blocking and locking before it opened out one of the killing centers in the States. And so that's very much in, in line with the second perspective that you described. And although not losing sight of the desire for loving the one in our midst. And so he made that clear as well, that what he was doing was buying time for the mothers and the babies, right? There were a few hours where nobody could enter. And so it's always, I mean, a combination of the both of both of them. And I think when you pay attention to those who are most abandoned in our culture, because it's an act of faith, springing from one's own commitment to Christ in and of itself is is going to affect the change that people believe needs to happen, even those who don't have faith, because people are in that, people are willing to offer themselves and uh, make sacrifices that are absolutely necessary for any real social change. The slogan of, of the rescue movement originally was, if abortion is murder, act like it. I've always thought that, that what you and Linda are doing is, is, is one very powerful way of conveying that message to the culture. Now, from a practical perspective, because a lot of people are going to think, wow, right, here's this, this young woman and she's going out and she's getting arrested in front of clinics as a byproduct of, of what you're doing at, at, these, at these places, right? Getting arrested is not the intent. Going to those places is the intent and getting arrested is the byproduct. But maybe explain a bit of your story of how did it go from going outside and then inside these clinics to getting arrested? Because how much time have you spent in prison in total now? In total, about six years. And the bulk of that was during 20, 2010 and 2019. When God made that really clear to me, and I, I spoke of how he, he really broke my heart by letting me see the reality of what happens to the child in an abortion, I sought spiritual direction on the matter, and I was urged to do so, and it was wise to seek that counsel. And just after meeting with the, the priest, I went into the cathedral in Vancouver to pray, and I met a young woman who was pregnant. She was passively begging at the, on the steps of the cathedral. And what became clear to me, because it was about a month of contact with her, she was out of province, and even though the abortion was intended, she couldn't get the health care coverage. So we had a month. And what was really clear to me was the commitment to that mother and the child. And there was no point during that, because that relationship had been established, that I as a Christian could have said, okay, well, I've done enough. I knew when the abortion was scheduled, where it was scheduled. She freely told me that. And I just knew in conscience I couldn't just stop and, and say, okay, now you can go because I've done what I can. So that desire to be with her, to remain in the presence of, of her and her child who was in imminent danger was clear. And it just led to my being arrested because when I went inside with her and that confrontation happened by me speaking up for and to a mother I was told to leave and I knew I couldn't leave. So that led to my arrest and it was sort of my understanding of the pattern then. If I have a relationship with somebody, then I have a commitment to them. So I don't see that there's a disparity between the two. For me, it was a very natural progression that I, I was called to love that person and there wasn't a, a point in time or a line in the sand where I could stand back. Did you not find getting arrested and sent to prison kind of terrifying? I know veteran pro-life activists who've done this for decades and, and, and getting arrested just that moment and then getting sent to prison is still something that they have a lot of fear about. And yet you've done it many, many, many times. I guess I did initially, but I was really blessed to meet some Christians living in a Christian community before I was arrested. And it just happened. I was in court for somebody else and then they were there as well. And and so I talked to them. They, they told me, oh, we've been arrested many times for our pro-life actions. And so it helped ease it. They kind of 
shared some funny stories from it and it kind of eased it. But also my older friend came with me that day that I accompanied the young mom and she stayed outside on the sidewalk. But the police arrested her first based on the claim of the abortion staff that she was violating the bubble zone. In fact, she wasn't, but she was very happy to go to jail with me. She'd been arrested before and was happy to sort of break me in there. And yes, it could be terrifying. Some people no doubt have had or could have very difficult experiences. And I did as well in some situations, but never did I feel like he, he, wasn't, he wasn't there or that he gave me more than I could handle with his grace. What is it like when you go to, uh, to prison for attempting to save babies at abortion clinics? Like what is, so when you, when you go to prison, what, how do the other inmates react to you? What kind of conversations do you have? I know Linda Gibbons told me that she saw being in prison as the secondary ministry, the first ministry being at the clinics, the second being, being there. And actually I've met women on the streets who had gotten out of prison recently, who told me they changed their mind about abortion after meeting a woman named Linda, which was, was really extraordinary. I'm like, Linda Gibbons are like, how do you know Linda Gibbons? I'm like, well, I'm part of the pro-life movement. Everybody knows Linda Gibbons. So what was your experience like? A lot to share there, but I'll start just with saying that knowing that a lot of the women that I'd be speaking to probably most would be post-abortive, I would answer carefully and in a way that made them understand, of course, I was opposed to abortion, but importantly, too, that I understood the, the depth of the wound, something of the depth of the wound of, of abortion based on what I've heard and based on with women I've talked to who've gone through that. So it led to quite a work in, in the prison in just simply meeting and talking with the women so many women, even those who've been raised in Christian Catholic homes who'd had abortions. And I would say about 80% of the women that I talked to within the prison walls would tell me at some point that they had had an abortion. And oftentimes they would say, and I've never really talked about it since then or talked about it with anybody. So it just opened up for me, my, my eyes to the great need for post-abortion healing, another important work. And so I think too, the poverty in jail leads a lot of women to see the desperation that we live in, all of us, without Christ in our lives, without knowing that God is close to us, loves us, and can forgive us. And so a lot of the women, they'd see me praying because you're exposed in prison. You you know really have no privacy. And see me simply praying, and, and that would draw women to me to ask to pray. Although, of course, most of them would want to pray just so that they could get out of jail the next time they have the chance to, to go to court. And that's fine because God meets us where but I just found it was really fertile ground for the Holy Spirit to be working there in the prison and, and Linda as well. And she had shared that in her, I think, 11 years of incarceration, she's helped a lot of moms choose life. It's a very pro-abortion environment and in custody. And together, we were together for a time and we, we saw one young mom choose life for her child, who would now be, I think, about seven or eight years old. When you look back at your your six years of uh, of time in prison, and it's such a strange thing to think of somebody going to prison for that, for 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 loving babies and loving women as, as much as you do. What are some of the experiences that really stand out to you? The openness to women to pray, also to share the truth about themselves. We could talk about anything in custody. It, there's really very little that's taboo, very little at all, and that was refreshing. That was one aspect because. <laughs> I, I, you, you know, although you probably don't care, but it's, it's hard for people to talk about a lot of things out in regular life outside of jail, but in custody, people are willing to talk about just about anything and say it like it is too, for the most part. So I appreciated that. I appreciate how, 
how God would show me how much I needed him because it was tough in there sometimes and he would always provide it for me because I needed a sense of his presence, many graces in that in that respect. What would the most difficult aspect of, of the prison experience be for you? I'm used to attending mass daily and having access to confession. I think that it was it was hard because we very seldom had the chance for the mass and, and confession and also Eucharistic adoration. That's something that really didn't exist. So that was very hard for me. Thanks be to God, I had access to the Bible and could have books sent in. So that was hard. Sometimes the negativity was really hard. And there were periods when I felt like completely useless in custody, like there was nobody really willing to be open that happened towards especially my last time in Vanier wasn't my last incarceration but my last time in Vanier I just sensed such a like a, a growing hostility that was hard that was very hard when it doesn't seem like you have any okay God I don't see any work that you're calling me to and I just you can't even pray it, it, but I know that from spiritual writers that in that moment that that he's still at work but still it's that kind of blind faith. What was the reaction of, of family members and friends to the the mission that you felt called to of being arrested, not just once, but time and again? That must have been difficult for, for other people to see. In the early years, because I had been on track towards finishing university, going on to post-grad work, I was thinking of many different things that a lot of people think about. And so when I went off track, so to speak, of course, my mom, especially being a mom, she worried about me and it was very hard for her every time I was taken into custody. And she really, really challenged me on that. So harder for her, my dad, less so. But when I left the monastery and um, they understood that I was going to be heading back down that road again, actually, God gave my mom a lot of graces to see just little signs that she knew couldn't be coincidences that she should accept that. And so she she did. I think a lot of friends and other family members who, who didn't maybe ask and didn't inquire as much. It's hard to know what, what people think when there's not really an open discussion about it. I have different siblings who are very supportive and, and others who who just, you know, wouldn't talk, wouldn't want to talk about it too much. So not because they're all pro-life, because almost every one of them is, but just because it's a very, like you said, it's it's the idea of going against the law. It's very ingrained in us in, in, as Canadians to be law-abiding and and so when you're breaking the law, so to speak, even though if the law is unjust or unjustly applied, there's still not really, a, I think, a clarity of understanding that not only is this an okay thing to do, it can be exactly what needs to be done. So a lot of those discussions haven't happened or, or didn't happen simply because you just see, oh, that person is going to jail. Well, that's not for me or that's uh, kind of productive to all these things. No, and that's why I asked, because getting arrested, as in breaking the law and getting arrested, is still very controversial, even inside the movement, right? The rescue movement was was debated and still is in history books written by pro-lifers, debating the effectiveness, debating when can you break the law. Of course, the discussion about when you can break the law was was, was revived during COVID with mandates and restrictions and all these kinds of things, and so a lot of people were suddenly very interested in in the details of exactly when you could break the law, where the line was. I found it interesting, actually, to see during COVID that all of these discussions were suddenly being had by people who would not have been open to discussing whether or not you could get arrested outside an abortion clinic for, for helping women. 
And I remember thinking, surely if you can break that law, how much more justified would it be to break the law in order to save save a human life? And so when these things come up now, there's much more there's a much broader willingness to have the discussion of of when can we break the law and, and when can we not break the law. I know that you you guys have seen babies saved outside clinics and you've been blessed to see that the, the work you've done has resulted in saved lives. Maybe share some of those stories with us because it's one of the things that, that keeps both you and Linda going and also they're just the most encouraging things for people to hear. That's a great grace to, to know that children's lives have, have been spared. And I think one of the first times, probably, you know, not, not the very first time, but actually, yes, the first time when I re-initiated going to the, the killing places, I had a couple of friends who drove up from the States because I really had no contacts in Toronto other than Linda, who was in custody. And they wanted to be there with me in support and in prayer support. And I had gone inside and my friend had kind of lingered in the hallway and he said he saw one of the moms take the rose from that I that I had given her and walk out of the hallway. So I didn't see that and I didn't know about that until later. But that has happened. I've been told that by other people who'd come as prayer support that they had witnessed that, and it's very very encouraging. And who knows what happens after that? But there was also one woman, and we're, we've been in touch with her. She continued in contact with the with the Sisters of Life who came to her help right after we kind of placed asked them to help her in, in that respect after she'd left the killing place and and he's he just turned five years old this little boy his mother was convicted enough that she wrote a letter for me to the judge when that case eventually went to trial and it just had such an impact on the the crown counsel who was very hardened and very hostile and then as the the trial progressed and that letter was read and the judge as well it just had such an impact so not only did this little life not only was he spared that day, but he changed his mom, he changed his dad, and he had an impact on so many people who were in court or who read about it. That's such a joy, such a joy. And it gives us a, a window into the truth of one person and how precious each individual life is. So you've done this for years and years. And, and of course, yeah, you've spent up to six years in prison. And it's gotten only more difficult here in Canada as more and more bubble zones pass. There seems to be like legal nooses sort of tightening on any work outside clinics from sidewalk counseling to the work that yourself and Linda Gibbons do. What do you see as the way forward for yourself? What are your next plans to the extent that you can share them with us on a podcast? Actually, I think God has definitely taken me down a new path and it's a continuation of the work that I've have been doing for the previous 10 years. And my parents have been caring for four kids who are in care, and including two of the siblings who were born into their care. And just during the time of the initial lockdown, when we continued to be praying for a family for them, God put on my heart that he was asking me to, to become a part of this family here again. So so this is a new path for me, and, and I believe, God willing, that I'll be able to continue and help raise these, these children as my parents become older and less able to, you know, less energetic in that. So a different a different path. but. What is happening now in the States especially is very, very encouraging. And I can only just hope that I could in some way share in that maybe when kids are a bit older. We'll see. <laughs> is Linda carrying on with the ministry outside the clinics? Linda is carrying on in a different way in a commitment to her elderly friend, our elderly friend, who hosted me in Toronto for the, the last few years of my, my living there. And so it's been it's been 
difficult for Linda in some ways because her heart is also there, but her heart is also very much with her friend who needs her and, and to whom she's committed. Well, Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us. Well, thank you for, for inviting me and for your good questions. And, and God bless you for your work as you continue in, the, in this difficult environment. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Canadian pro-life activist Mary Wagner. I wanted to mention, because of course she would not, that in 2012, Conservative Member of Parliament Maurice Vellicott presented her with a Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal in recognition of her contribution to Canadian society. And I think that that medal was very well deserved. For those of you interested in this conversation, if you want to hear more conversations with pro-life activists, with pro-family activists, with those who who are fighting the decline of our culture, you can head over to lifesitenews.com, click on the podcast tab. You can subscribe to the Van Maren Show there. Once again, thank you so much for your time, and we hope you'll join us again next week.